captain's log. Using the light speed breakaway factor, the Enterprise has moved back through time to the 20th century. We are now in extended orbit around Earth, using our ship's deflector shields to remain unobserved. Our mission, historical research. We are monitoring Earth communications to find out how our planet survived desperate problems in the year 1968. Strange new takes. I'm your host, Natch Karnik, and with me sneaking into a missile base are Bill Boybod and Rudy Kusbaker. Welcome to Strange New Takes. We're excited to continue this series recapping episodes of Star Trek that deal with time travel. Time travel, which I've considered participating in myself, but I, I just feel like there's no future in it. So, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're going to recap Assignment Earth from Star Trek the original series. Make sure to follow us on social media at Strange New Takes on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell your friends about our podcast. Uh, you know, the more uh, we kind of socialize and make people uh, familiar with the podcast, the more listeners we get. And we really like that a lot. Um, and also don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts because that um, allows uh, new listeners to find us and discover us. Yeah, and always, um, as always, um, this is a spoiler warning. So in case you've waited 50 years, uh, 50 plus, yeah, 50 plus years to watch this episode, um, maybe you want to go and watch it. If not, just listen to us. Um, I will admit I hadn't watched this one before, so it was good for me to watch it before joining a pod about it. Um, But yeah, um, uh, but if you don't care... Go ahead and jump in with us. I think we'll do a good job walking you through it. <laughs> you know, it's been a busy 50 years. It <laughs> has, <laughs> indeed. to get to this one, but haven't been able to find the time. No it's, orbital. It's nice. I stashed this away in my retirement fund, you know, like <laughs> open after 65. Well, time capsule, right? That's 50 right. years, right? Those are really 50 years. Um, well, there's no orbital missile bases um, that we know of, at least. So things yeah. have not turned out too badly, maybe, hopefully. We'll hopefully hopefully well um this so this episode is again called assignment earth it's the second episode or it's the 26th episode of the second season of tos first aired as rudy mentioned on 29th march 1968 the teleplay was by art wallace the story was by gene roddenberry and art wallace and it was directed by mark daniels uh, the in-universe date this episode takes place entirely in the year 1968 so we always open every episode with our strange new takes. So what are your strange new takes this week? Who's got some? Uh, so I'll go first. Um, <clears throat> I'm not a historian, so I'll probably get some of these details wrong. But I, I read the other day that Hitler, uh, you know, was in World War One, and then after World War One was employed by the German government and was dispatched to go, I think, to southern Germany or Munich or something to infiltrate like a group of right-wing racist populists who were like organizing politically. And then he just fell in with them and like became their leader and the rest is history. So (laughs) I don't don't know what my point is, except that um, like originally Hitler was like a a spy embedded Hmm. in... (laughs) in the group that would become the the nazi party oh my god yeah crazy right it's almost um, like got a noriega kind of spin to it right yeah yeah um so anyway uh regarding this episode i mean i, I don't know what to say um i i really liked the the front half actually and then it just totally lost me on the um on the back half but loved seeing the Saturn V, that was probably my first, or, you know, my favorite part of the whole thing was the Saturn V shots. Which, some of which were specifically provided by NASA for Gene Roddenberry. No way, ah, that's awesome. Very nice. Um, I can go next. Um, along that same theme, um, I do want to commend NASA and the Apollo program on um, their lunar lander, because I had a bit of a 
difficulty earlier i was talking to both of you about it with my um, mic tripod and without one leg it does not a tripod make and um, the lunar lander would not have done so well um, if it lost one leg but uh, it, it, it did all right so uh, um, less tripods <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, yeah and for this episode, it was um, it was really interesting, and we'll, we'll get into it, I guess, in story and writing. But it was for me like a combination in of um, Star Trek, uh, I Dream a Genie, and a bunch of other stuff all happening together. Um, <laughs> I uh, I also like the Saturn Five callouts. I've seen the actual um, booster. I think it was for eighteen. Apollo 18, it's, it's at the Johnson Space Center. So, yeah, it was good to see that. And it's interesting because those were pictures as of 1968, and that was before the actual even, like, 7, 8, Apollo 7 and 8 and all had, had been launched. So it's when you look at Apollo in, in hindsight, you get the pictures that are, you know, 8, 9, 10 onwards. So this was a nice little snapshot of before, yeah. So Bill and I were at dinner last night, and he asked me, "Would is there any difference between light beers, like Coors Light, Miller Light, Bud Light? <clears throat> at the risk of offending everybody listening to us, like losing all our listenership, I'll tell you what I told Bill, which is that there isn't. I think there, like chemically at least, I think mm. that there is when you drink it because you associate it with happy memories, happy feelings, whatever. And... It just brings me to the point that I feel like so much of food is all about like the things that you associate that food with visually, auditorily, like texturally. And that was proved later on in our dinner when we had this tuna watermelon dish. It was a crudo and it had raw tuna and watermelon cut to exactly the same size. So in like when we were sitting outside in the dark, you could barely see which one was which. And it was always a surprise with every bite, which one was tuna and which one was watermelon. It was super fun. I enjoyed it. And the tastes go well together, like surprisingly. So I guess my strange new take is just that take that into account when you cook and you like elevate your like food game to a little bit. And also when you go to restaurants and stuff, like enjoy that like sense of, you know, associating food with different memories and, and different feelings because it'll it'll uh, it'll give you a new sense of um, of what you're eating. Uh, and, and I, I always enjoy that. But um, hey, sorry, I just want to add one thing to that. If there's anybody from like AB InBev or Miller Coors who's listening uh, and wants to be our sponsor, we can definitely find a difference between <laughs> between your superior light beer and the blind and all the competitors. It's beer this time, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, my my, you know, the one thing that occurred to me while watching this episode was just that like. When you're two seasons into a 50-year franchise, it's it's funny how little matters compared to how much will matter later. Like, here, they're just like, oh, yeah, we just, like, time travel. We just did it. Oh, it was cool. Yeah. Then then they're like, uh, okay, we, we you're, you're from a planet. Which planet? He's like, Psh, you won't know it. Don't, <laughs> don't even bother. And, and there's just, like, all this hand-waving and, like, lack of regard for any sort of, like, canon or the implications of what happens later with some of the stuff you're coming up with. It's just funny how much is just, like, casually just thrown out there. <laughs> uh, but I, I um, yeah, even even the, like, weird computer voice, the, like, self-typing typer. It's just a lot of stuff in here that was just, like, okay, let's just throw it and whatever. We're about to be canceled. It's not a problem. <laughs> um, but... Speaking of which, uh, getting into actually discussing this episode, the first thing to discuss is that TOS was teetering on the blink brink of cancellation during its second season. It, it, it officially got a third season later, but they weren't sure at this point when this episode was made that that was going to happen. And this script was originally written as a standalone uh, script just featuring Roberta, Gary Seven, and Isis. There were no Star Trek characters in it. And Gene Roddenberry is like, hmm, how do I get this pilot made? And he's like, I got it. I'll make it an episode of Star Trek. And so it's a backdoor pilot. Uh, hmm. And uh, Bill, I believe you had told us about this many, many months ago when we first started this podcast, that there was this backdoor pilot, uh, because I think we were discussing it in, in, the, in the context of the City on the Edge of 
forever guy showing up in uh, Discovery. Mm. I, you know, I'd love to take credit for that, but I actually didn't know that, so it was it was somebody else. I, you had brought up like backdoor pilots because Giorgio, uh, yep. you you had, you, I'm sure it was you because you you like mentioned you might have listened to it somewhere else, but you were like, yeah, this Giorgio stuff might be like a backdoor pilot to the Giorgio series. So, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. I yeah, think that's true. I didn't know about Gary Seven though. But anyway, okay. yeah. So, so yeah. So actually, this, yeah. Actually, I actually have Rudy. a vague recollection of Gary Seven being mentioned in one of our previous podcasts. Um, so I don't know who said it, but um, yeah, I haven't. I hadn't seen this episode. Before. I'm, I'm going to travel into the past in about an Mystery. hour's time to go and say that on that <laughs> podcast that you that you heard. Well, about. You know, I was thinking that this podcast could be a backdoor pilot for our new spinoff <laughs> podcast, which is all about Gary Seven. <laughs> Uh, I think there are like a few comic books and novels with him, but that's about it. But yeah, obviously it did not work. Uh, the, the pilot, the show wasn't picked up. And yeah, so, so just keep that in mind. And I, I don't know about y'all, but I don't have a ton to discuss with this because it's pretty straightforward and we'll, we'll get into it. But anyway, the summary of this episode is the Enter Enterprise travels back in time to 1968 when the crew encounters the mysterious Gary Seven who claims to be sent by advanced beings trying to help earth um the first thing to discuss is have you all have either of you read any books about the year 1968 or like watched any tv shows about it not that no. i particularly recall no specifically no so there's an entire cnn four-part miniseries based on 1968 alone some of you may know oh, they've created wow. series called the 60s 70s 80s yeah yep, yep. 90s you know all those they're, they're really cool you yep. can find watch them but they made a four-part series on 68 alone because of just how much happened in that year. Um, for example, Bobby Kennedy died, MLK died, there was the 68 election, there was, I believe, the Tet Offensive uh, in mm -hmm. Vietnam. Oh. This was a year that just... I, was Kent State in 68 or was it in, in a different year? Um I, I But there was a, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago that had riots... That was in 68 as well. So oh. this episode, so Kent State happened in 1970, so disregard that reference. But this episode aired in March of 68. And it says, you know, at the beginning, Captain Kirk says, um, our mission, historical research, we are monitoring Earth communications to find out how our planet survived desperate problems in the year 1968. And it's like, it's, it's strangely prescient because like even as recently as four years ago when I when I talked to a much older person about like, you know, things seem kind of bad right now. He said like, yeah, but you weren't alive in 1968. Wow. And it looks like this is just at the end of the third month, right? Like it's mm -hmm. end of March. So I think MLK gets assassinated after this, like literally a few days after maybe. But... Six days. Six yeah. days after <laughs> there. So and they're already sort of. Yeah, that's that's a lot. Um, so, I mean, Gene Broddenberry could have been a time traveler himself. We don't know, but, mm. uh, <laughs> he sent the Enterprise on a very worthy mission. Also, on the same day as MLK died, Apollo 6 had a Saturn V mishap. Oh, wow. Okay. No crew invo involved, I think, right? Hopefully. Uh, I, I can tell you what it was. I forget now exactly, but there was, um... Launch of the unmanned Apollo unmanned, 6 yeah. Saturn V rocket, and it went off course. Mm. Oh, that's similar to what happened here, kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I started watching this episode, and when Spock mentioned assassination, I was like, oh, Roddenberry's writing about what he knows. And then I went online, and I was like, wait, no, he doesn't. This was... Uh, well, that's really creepy, right? Like when, when yeah. you said Gene Roddenberry being a time traveler and introducing Star Trek into our uh, timeline, that is a, that's actually no, but, a fascinating concept. But, but it's a reference to Bobby Kennedy, right? Not MLK. But, so MLK died uh, uh, before Kennedy. Oh, it was really? one of Bobby Kennedy's greatest speeches, which if you're listening oh, to this, yeah, go yeah, listen yeah. to it. It's Bobby yeah. Kennedy announcing MLK's death to a crowd that doesn't know. So, yeah. Yeah. So, Somber. yeah, this was, uh, this was, I mean, it's really strange, but uh, uh, America could have used Gary Seven in 1968, let's put it that way. So, 
Okay, let, let's we we've been going through these chronologically, so let's start at the beginning. And you know, usually we talk about the mechanics of the time travel in each of these episodes. Uh, the mechanics of the time travel in this episode happened right at the beginning, and there's one line. I'm going to read it out to you, and you can tell me what you think. Captain's log. Using the lightspeed breakaway factor, the Enterprise has moved back through time to the 20th century. We are now in extended orbit around Earth, using our ship's deflector fields to remain unobserved. Yeah, so... I, I don't know if we've talked about this before. So was time travel outlawed after this? Uh, temporal directive, whatever, accords? It looked like for a, di- for a time it was just a, like an, 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 a regular mission, like like a, like a star charting mission. You just go back and uh, observe stuff. And um, at the same time, sorry, I, I don't remember. Was this before or after the City on the Edge of Forever episode? I believe after. it was after. So they were able to go back in time then, but they needed the the portal to do that. And then the, now it's like it's they can do stuff like that, and it doesn't really matter, right? So, well, so this uses, I believe, the same technology as used in the episode "Tomorrow Is Yesterday." Have you you've watched that, right, Bill? Is that the one with like the fighter jet? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Is that the is that the solar flare because that's the one that keeps coming up again and again, right? That's yeah. they use the same they use the same technology, it because but they just make a reference to the light speed breakaway barrier, but breakaway factor. But that's basically going around the sun. So, I haven't watched that episode, so I can't tell you about that. But Bill, maybe if you remember, I I will I say really. yeah, I will say that. The solar flare sun situation is a very common um, uh, approach to uh, sci-fi time travel. I think that's what happens in Farscape as well in the, the whole series. Okay, maybe don't want to spoil it for people who haven't watched it, but the poor dude tries to replicate it for like multiple seasons and can't get back, but whatever. <laughs> After allowing the gravitational pull to accelerate the vessel to even faster speeds, the vessel would then break away from the stellar body, creating a whiplash effect, which could then transport the vessel, vessel, vessel through time. Performing this maneuver required extremely precise calculations to be made, such as availability of fuel components, acceleration, and mass of a vessel through a time continuum. So. You have to travel an extremely high warp factor through towards a massive body with a high gravitational attraction, such as a star. This is an explanation from Memory Alpha. And, and they don't really show him going back, right? At the end of this one, right? It's it's like everybody's happy, and, and the episode ends. Yeah. yeah. There. Yeah. Um, so just a, a quick sidebar. You know, I I still really love the um, TOS remaster. Um, so, you know, so all the CGI I think is, you know, pretty well done. I think they were actually a little bit too conservative, but because there's, you know, so true to the original material, but mm-hmm. anyway, there's another TOS episode, um, probably the one you just mentioned, Notch, where they actually show the Enterprise doing this maneuver and going around the sun to, to time travel. Yeah. I think that's tomorrow's yesterday. Cause there's a little yeah. screenshot in here and I believe it also, <laughs> I wonder if it's if it's if it's also used in the voyage home. So, I mean, I I can't speak to the science of this. Uh, I don't know if either of you can whether it's even possible. But like, I I mean, it's it, it's it, universe wise though. This seems a little too convenient to be a thing that exists in Star Trek canon. Yeah, I mean, I think it's totally stupid. It's almost like saying <laughs> like, if you you know if you like, uh, you know, go to East Asia you know, you can like go like back in time. I'm doing air quotes listeners because you cross the international dateline. Mm. It's just like a, and the international dateline is just like a human convention. It's just like an artifact of how we like divide hours, you know, across the different, like, you know, uh, longitudes around the earth. You don't actually go back in time. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, it's really, I think that's the logic. It's like, well, if we just like unwind the, earth spin will go back in time it's really really dumb well that'll just lead to huge climate changes and not good stuff so (laughs) i uh this would be like if it was so easy like you know if i woke up in the morning one day and someone was like how's it going and i'd say like 
you know, good morning or something, or like, you know, have some like slightly awkward interaction. I'll just be like, all right, quick, take the, take the ship around the sun. I need to redo that. <laughs> like, that was ridiculously awkward. I need to erase it from existence. Um, I don't know if we're already into, I mean, I guess we are into story and writing, but the interesting thing is they're going back in time to observe things more closely to see how six, 1968, Earth survived 1968. Um, so it sounds like they don't have good records on how that happened, right? I'm assuming. Um, and at the same time, throughout the episode, right, they are unsure of whether to trust Gary Seven or not, mm-hmm. right? Um, which means they don't know um, if if he is... Well, I guess it, it's kind of plausible that he could be a new entrant in that timeline and he's actually going to make it worse, all of that. But suddenly when they do end up trusting him right at the end, they're like, oh, you're going to have a lot of adventures and all that. And which is, which is the, which is the segue to the, to the pilot or whatever backdoor pilot. But if they, I, I don't know, did they find that out or it's like they were trying to research records and it all kind of coincidentally happened when everything ended and, and then they knew what was going to happen. Um, so here's a way you can retcon it, which is that this all was not supposed to happen, but because of Enterprise's interruption, Gary Seven's mission succeeded, which is why the records of him in the future appeared, because they weren't there, like they had, you know. Oh, that's twisted, okay. <laughs> this this is Star Trek time travel bullshit that comes out of my head, it's uh, like which we can use. People disappearing and appearing in photos, the records are like appearing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which is that in uh back to the future the, 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 the yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 so so yeah they're, they're slowly fading away in the photograph like marty is like yeah so, <laughs> but yeah that was true i mean i got that too in the last scene but all right so early in the episode the enterprise intercepts a transporter beam from a far far away and they find this dude and his cat and spock makes friends with the cat and then the guy like uses his weird smiley pen like it's that whole sequence on board the enterprise was just very strange well was was doctor who already a thing by this time or no because that pen situation um reminds me of his trusty screwdriver it's it's his um it doctor who has a tool i mean i haven't watched too many of those but that's his um it's a tool to help solve all problems so yep, this... doctor who started in 63 okay so um, he called, what do you call this one? This is like a servo or something, right? Yeah, um, it's a yeah. servo. So, plus the, I don't know if you want to talk about the servo. I, I just loved how it had a stun setting that kept people happy. Um, yeah, that's very convenient. <laughs> once they nice. got stunned. Um, who, who was it? It was the guard, right? The, the security guard on the right, Enterprise. Right, yeah. Uh, and then the uh, security guard at, uh, at the missile site. And they were just so happy. I, I'd love to get stunned and... and have a happy feeling about it and and be told like yeah just take a nap go to sleep right here um i i thought there was something sweet about spock being saying that the cat was like strangely what was it forget the name now the 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 word he, he oh, said yeah. is strangely like uh calming or something like that i can't remember now yeah and, and was there like a sequence of events that led to the cat going to him because i actually don't remember i suddenly see the cat in his in his arms in a briefing session where the whole ship is keyed in. And I was like, what happened? Did they just send Gary Seven to the prison? And maybe I, I blacked out in between. I don't know. They, I, I don't think they showed us, but they, you would imagine that when they took him over to the prison, someone was like, what do we do with that cat? And Spock was like, <laughs> yoink. Which, yeah. I mean, to be fair, when I see cats, I also pick them up and, you know, give them pets. Like, that's... It's just I hadn't seen this before, right? So from So two things. For me, when that transporter beam was, you know, trying to materialize something... I had n- no idea what was going to come out of it. I was expecting some kind of alien, multi paired creature. And seeing a guy in a suit with a cat was really surprising to me. And then once the cat was not put into the brig with um, um, Gary Seven, I was like, okay, that cat is totally going to break him out. Like, that's, that's the plot, right? Um, but I guess uh, that didn't happen either. Yeah, this, this advanced technology that this dude had was, like, way more advanced than 23rd century. So, like, whoever his alien masters are are, like, incredibly further advanced than the humans. And they're probably time travelers as well because he he, he was like, oh, that's a Vulcan and humans 
are not with Vulcans yet, so you're from the future. So it looks like he also had some sort of cognizance of the future. Um, it's it's fascinating. Those are the interesting things. Another thing I noticed was, so he's 194, and the people that died were like 347 and something. So there's like hundreds of them, and they have different classes. Mm-hmm. I guess it took those many people to uh, get Earth out of uh, 1968 or whatever, right? And keep it keep it from blowing itself up. I don't know. I mean, which is a funny thing about those two earlier agents is that so okay, so let's 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 get to them because we 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 go so Gary Seven escapes the Enterprise uh, through the transporter, and we're suddenly in Manhattan, which is established by a shot of the street where he's looking down from the building, a same shot that was used in many episodes of The Man from Uncle, by the way. Oh. Uh, He's on East 68th Street, which is the same address as uh, I Love Lucy from, or Lucy oh. and Ricky from I Love Lucy, uh, also a Desi Lu show. And he's in this, like, everything in his apartment swivels. Like, there's just, like, <laughs> things that, like, open. Like, everything is like a fake battle. It's just very funny. I, I thought it was awesome. I, I loved the apartment. For, I mean, I loved just, like, the 1960s decor and the... It was a little bit like mid-century modern, and I thought it was very cool. Um, and then I loved all the hidden panels and like vaults and computers and stuff. I thought it was pretty sweet. He had a bureau with a pen stand. Do you have a pen stand at home, Bill, where you like keep your like fountain pen? Where do you keep your fountain pens? <laughs> <laughs> and an important one in that. That's the one that swivels the the bar open, the vault or whatever, right? So no, I, I actually think... have them inside the vault. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, I can touch Antiques. Them. I, I thought that was pretty convenient. Like somebody could just mistakenly flip it and like, oh, okay, there's a secret. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. There's not <laughs> a good place. To... <laughs> right. And yeah. And, and then we have this robot who talks like other robots. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> it was so ridiculous. Like it just, and, and uh, then we get to the, the two previous agents who have died in a car crash, like right before. It's pretty gruesome. Yeah, that was that was uh, interesting. Where you know he kind of reflects on the like senselessness of human death, and you know he's like they died in a car accident of all things. Like it, it's so pointless. And then the show just goes on to the next scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was it was um, almost poignant or something, and it sounded like they were trying to get to something or make a reference to something. And I thought, I was almost like, hey, did they get killed? Is there some other antagonist in play here? Um, like, it wasn't by chance, but they never really followed up on it. And um, the, the uh, yeah, no, I was, I was going to talk about uh, Beta 5, right? The, 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 the computer, but um, mm-hmm. I don't know if we should get into that now. Should we? Should we? Let's, found, uh, yeah, let's, let's do it. I, I found, I don't think we've, we've dealt with, um, um, emo- overly emotional renegade computers till this point. <laughs> That's right? right. The computer was sassy. <laughs> Very. So I don't know if they were trying to go there and I guess they were trying to build each of those characters for the backdoor pilot, right? You could totally see going forward that there's going to be a, a love-hate relationship with the computer um, and and um it's almost like he was expecting the computer to mistreat him because he's like, I don't have time to deal with a beta, beta five snobbery. So that line of computers yeah. is renowned for that. Um, yeah, I, I liked it. I, I got a little bit of um, another question. Uh, was was um, 2001 A Space Odyssey out by this time or no? Because there was a little bit of Hal in there with the... Uh, light-driven audio, right? Not not right. so much. Here, it's like Tetris. I was going to say, like, your, your, the knowledge of a computer being a certain way emotionally would have really helped uh, Dave on <laughs> with Hal 9000. <laughs> which, by the way, that movie came out April 2nd, 1968. Oh, my God. So they were being created that concurrently. crazy. Um, the other thing is orbital weapons platforms, right? That's the whole thing right. about 2001 Space Odyssey, right? With the whole Blue Danube and um, I forget the gentleman's name, but he's traveling to the moon and he, he cuts across a Soviet um, orbital weapons platform, which is kind of showing that, hey, if we go here, it's not a good thing. 
Wow, that's fascinating. There's, there's, there's. Could I go ahead and say there's too many interesting coincidences here? Gene Roddenberry, time traveler. Uh, by the way, the scientist in two thousand one who was on that, uh, the who's on the, what is it? That airliner that travel or space liner is Dr. Hayward Floyd, who then shows up as a main character in twenty ten, the sequel to yep. two thousand one. But uh, I with that with that sassy computer, it's very convenient. The computer was like. Can you tell me your exposition so that the viewers can understand who the hell you are? <laughs> and he's like, ah, all right, fine. Here's who I am. Here's what's happening here, computer. Uh, and then we meet Roberta, who is played by Terry Garr. Um, some kind of unpleasant stuff about her character real quick. Gene uh, mm -hmm. Roddenberry was trying very hard to have her skirt shorter throughout the filming. And so if you, I don't know if you'll notice, but like the second she pops on screen, I was like, the hem is kind of looking weird there. And that's because he had altered the skirt to be shorter so many times that it just was like the dress didn't work anymore. And Terry Gar herself had such an unpleasant time filming this episode that she never talks about Star Trek going forward. Oh my God. Okay. So yeah, just keep that in mind as you, as you like think about assignment dirt that, um, it was a very unpleasant experience for her because of, uh, some of the things that Gene Roddenberry asked for um, with her character and the acting here. So that kind of sucked. But I remember like when she popped on the screen, I was just, I was like, who is this? And why are we like focusing on her walking down the street suddenly? And why is she like unable to go around another human being on the street? Yeah, and, was... and she has funny music every time she shows up. It's like, da, 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 da. <laughs> it was something like that. I'm impressed you remember it. I, I don't, I'm beginning to recall it now, but, and, and the, and the thing was, I kind of thought that she was one of those agents just as Gary Seven did, right? Like who mm -hmm. was supposed to be tracking in, 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 on the ground embedded, etc. And I was associating her weirdness and the music and all of that to, to the fact that she is, you know, she's playing a, a role and she's not really that person. And then that doesn't happen, right? Like they have a conversation where he's like, blah, blah, and he, he kind of reveals a lot of stuff and then she, she's not that person. But um, kind of going back to what you were saying, Notch, um, there's this, the, the computers um, assessing Roberta, right? Like who is this person? She's scanning uh, Roberta. And then there's a reference to her being blonde, but also having a high IQ or, or something like that. I don't know. They're like, like a, Oh, well, this isn't, I don't, I don't remember. Um, oh, yeah, it's pretty insulting. It's like yeah. something like, you know, despite like coming off as a moron, she's actually really intelligent. Uh, it, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And it was like, whoa, what, what's going on there? And yeah, I, I, yeah. So she's, it says, uh, it's well, it doesn't, it, it goes into a bunch of like very like personal details about yeah. her like height yeah. and all this stuff and then mentions her hair color but and then the sentence ends and then it's although behavior appears erratic possesses high IQ. So they're like, "Hey, we created this character to be a dumbass and funny and slapstick, but actually she's really smart, y'all." And it's just like the writers trying to like why couldn't they just make her smart? <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like it's it's a lame attempt to to drive some mystery and intrigue around her but it just comes off as insulting so that that was uh, unfortunate yeah um and she never really the, and when she says that when they say that she is off of high IQ I'm I'm assuming through the rest of the episode there will be instances where she does show that IQ but outside of um coincidentally saving Gary Seven from being transported back to the Enterprise and, and then making an emotional appeal to uh, Kirk to um, let to, to trust Gary Seven to let him do his thing in those remaining, whatever, 55 seconds or whatever. There's, I don't really think she has an opportunity to show some, you know, uh, thought and intelligence to, to, to you guys. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, they don't. They don't really, um, and then maybe they again, say, but they don't tell. I know? mean, they made made her. They wrote her as the comic relief. Let's let's like. I mean that that's what they made her character out to be in this episode. Unfortunately, she does. She's just like bumbling through every scene. Um, 
to her credit, she's skeptical of Gary Seven and like, you're not CIA. Like, what the hell? Like, of oh, course yeah. you're not. Like, she's yeah. not, you know, when, when he comes back, she's like, the things you're saying aren't consistent with... So there's that. But like, other than that, they just make her the like slapstick comic relief and then like at one point have her get attacked by Kirk and Spock and she's calling the cops and like, it's... I don't know. I feel like they, they just like kind of wasted that character and didn't... They didn't really know what the chemistry was there, I think. Like, what mm-hmm. Terry Gar's character was supposed to be. Because um, I think there was a disconnect between, like, this... The script, the actress, and, like, the way that it was directed. I just didn't... It didn't work for me, her character being the way, the way it was. And I think it was... It's, it's because of the creation of it. I wonder if she was written into the comic books and, and whatnot references you, you called out notch that never really made it to uh, television. Yeah. Um, who knows? Yeah. But hey, let, let's take a break right here. We'll come back and discuss the rest of this episode because we're about to leave for the missile base. All right. Let's go. My name is Gary Seven. I am a human being from the 20th century. I was on my way. Humans of the 20th century do not go beaming around the galaxy, Mr. Seven. I've been living on another planet far more advanced. I was beaming to Earth when you intercepted me. The location of that planet? I wish their existence kept secret. Even in your time, it will remain unknown. It's impossible to hide a whole planet. Impossible for you, not for them. Captain Kirk, I am of this time period. You are not. You interfere with me, with what I have to do down there. And you'll change history. You'll destroy the Earth, and probably yourselves, too. If what he says is true, Captain, every second we delay him could be dangerous. And if he's lying. This is the most critical period in Earth's history. The planet I'm from wants to help Earth survive. What if it turns out you're an invading alien from the future? Welcome back to Strange New Takes. I'm hoping Discovery has an episode called, like, uh, Assignment Mars or something. And they make a reference and Gary Seven comes back and... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they've they've been, they've shown some interest in finding like the TOS uh, bit part characters. So there are, or maybe on Strange New uh, Strange New Worlds, they they meet. They finally find the planet Gary Seven is from. I think it has a sense of authority. The name like assignment, Earth, or like, like right. Earth, Earth Final Conflict, right? <laughs> Something like that. What, what is what is the L. Ron Hubbard? Uh, Movie Battlefield Earth. Battlefield Earth. Yeah. yeah. Right. There you go. Well, okay. So, so the, we, we've talked about all of the setup in this episode, and essentially, this is where the 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 plot starts going. Gary Seven materializes onto a missile base, which both he and Kirk and Spock all transport into the same parking lot. Which it's like you couldn't find like some isolated spot to like materialize in. Like nobody seems to give a shit that like we might be caught like randomly transporting into a into a place we shouldn't be. Yeah, and there's like a guy who is getting off his happiness stun shift and coming back, com- coming right. to, and he's like, "Oh, more weird people, please." <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and uh, by the way, did y'all did y'all enjoy the? super easy to fake uh identification documents the like paper oh, thing just like man. i'm cia trust me <laughs> basically <laughs> well one of them had a thumbprint on it or some kind of fingerprint on it so. um i mean it was the 60s i don't know what the ids were really like at, at that point in time but yeah how is somebody supposed to check the thumbprint like how is that useful <laughs> yeah. right all right just just like, let me get like my magnifying TSA, glass like that's my thumbprint can i see your thumb please <laughs> you just kind of look at it like yeah that looks about right i see a little squiggle <laughs> over there <laughs> oh but the, but yeah i mean I, it was at about this point that i like my mind kind of sort of checked out of this episode to be honest um because you know th- that's where like the whole it's it's right before Kirk and Spock show up at the missile base they they end up attacking Roberta who calls the cops and then like the cops get transported to the Enterprise and then transported back and somehow that's nothing like bad happened there they were just like you know they, we, they just went guys. back to the police station <laughs> like I guess they weren't talked off after right they they right. just left right 
Um, and they're not like, ma'am, you, you were just attacked. And like, she's not like, oh my God, there's all this crazy stuff happening. Nobody gives a shit about any of the stuff that's happened. Well, the interesting thing is there is no real CIA, NSA, or FBI in this episode, right? Outside of those three mm. fake bosses, right? They, they don't show up at any point in time Mm-mm. trying to stitch stitch together all these weird events. So there's no 1968 version of uh, Mulder and Scully trying to figure stuff out, I guess. Nope. It's only Kirk and Spock. And Spock with his... Uh fantastic bucket hat i wish i had that to play golf with um like what's what's the i forget what the hat is in the beginning that he's wearing the like big fuzzy yeah it looks kind of like vaguely russian to me right right exactly ready for a really hard winter (laughs) my wife was not paying attention she was just passing back and forth while i was watching this and she kind of was happening the plot and then she suddenly saw that shot she she exactly said the same thing wait are they in russia and i was like no no that's just a one of the many Spock Vulcanier hiding hats, I guess. <laughs> right. And then, See, I mean, he wants to be inconspicuous, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, which also, their 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 inconspicuousness doesn't work at all because they beam into the middle of a parking lot. I was saying, get arrested right away, and somehow the guy arresting them is like, hmm, what's the most secure location I can take these intruders into a missile base? The mission control room. let's let's you terrorists won't get away with this i'm going to take you to the most sensitive sensitive location on this entire base where you can control the missile that's how i'll stop you (laughs) and and so there were the two important people there right one was the flight director i guess right the the mission director and i don't know who the other guy was but it looked like he was in or that secure room that they were in was a separate, like, elevated secure room and the rest of mission control or whatever was, you know, kept showing that same shot again of, like, these rows of computers. So I think that was interesting. And even when I think about those rows of computers, that didn't feel like the 1960s mission control to me. It seemed much more extensive. Like, there was a lot of rows and a lot of computers. So did that stick out to you guys? Um... Uh, I think so. I've watched some documentaries on Apollo and I think it depends on which mission control room you're talking about. Because I think there were like multiple of them. Like there was one in Houston, one in Cape Canaveral. And mm. so I, I, I'm I, not well versed enough to tell you. I know that the one in Houston, the one which today is a museum, if you want to, mm-hmm. if you go there, you can, take, oh, you can really? tour it. It's yeah, much yeah, smaller. Yeah. yeah. So if you, there's a documentary actually, oh, what is it called? It was on Netflix a while back, but it it, it has uh, Gene Kranz and a bunch of uh, the original Apollo like flight directors and, and flight controllers who come and talk to you. It's it's about mission control specifically, and in that they have them like there's a great shot where these guys who sat at the desks they're all old now and they're sitting at their original desks oh, and it's like a so nice. Yeah, okay. so so the background is they they that room has always. Um, the, they call it historic mission control or something like that. There's a there's a prefix to it which gives it its um, place in history. And you have tours going out of Johnson Space Center to that mission control. But um, for uh, the 50th anniversary, which I think um, was on 2000, 2019, uh, so I forget the, the, the launch date or the landing date, somewhere in the middle of July, I had the... Um, I had the opportunity, the good fortune to do a tour. You had to sign up for it way in advance where they actually have all these little tidbits, right? Including roses and rolled up flags and all of that. And you get to sit in that um, press room, I guess what you call it, with the red folded chairs. Mm-hmm. And they just run through the whole the, the three or five minutes of, of the actual touchdown. Uh, and they show the exact same screens, the telemetry and all of that. Um, and so... Long story short, that's that's amazing. I don't know if they still do it. I, I, I remember, remember that vividly. No photos, nothing, because apparently that even... Even the room you're sitting in, which is that press briefing room, is part of the museum. So they're extremely cautious in what you do there. Um, but long story short, um, the one that they showed in, in, in the Star Trek episode looked extremely... Like, three times the size of uh, what that was. So 
Right. I think I think that might have been the Johnson Space Center one because that's uh, not Johnson Space Center, the Cape Canaveral one. one. Yeah, yeah. So that that's what uh, I think we saw. But I mean, let's just put it this way. I don't think Gene Roddenberry cared very much about continuity of the Apollo program here. I think it was more like we have this other, our, we can't make, make a big enough set. So we're just going to show this massive room and then our little set will just pretend it's above it, like you were saying. And uh, somehow the flight director is up there and failure isn't an option. Anyway, what are you so saying, one, Just one other mystery that I think we need to investigate uh, regarding the uh, mission control is like, what's the deal with the, the, the old school NASA guys all wearing short sleeve white shirts with dark ties? Like, they, that's all they ever wear. Like, you never see a guy in a suit. It's like and a, you never see a, a guy without a tie. It's like this weird uniform that they all have to wear. It's like an it's, MIB uniform, right? Men in black without the black jacket. <laughs> it's it's because it's because they were used to being filmed with black and white cameras, so they were just like, we'll just wear black and white stuff. I mean, I I seriously think there's an explanation. It's like, oh, we can't have long sleeves because we need to do so much computing. You know, well, we need our <laughs> like our wrists free so they don't get caught on something. It it was hot, right? Like it was hot in Florida, so you would wear um short mm. sleeves for that reason and i mean if you look at a lot of historic footage even from like ibm and stuff like everybody seemed to wear that like white short sleeve shirt that was like the like i work in a business job but i am a worker not like upper management that was like your uniform was like a short sleeve white shirt with like for a long time just a very nondescript tie and then slowly as the 60s wore on you got like slight designs in the ties and then in the 70s everything went nuts um uh, it's uh yeah the other thing i think is when they beamed in right both gary seven and then spock and and kirk i was almost expecting to see somebody in a military uniform somewhere so essentially a missile i mean it's cape canaveral uh, footage which is nasa but this is a missile base right and there's nobody in uh, united states air force uniform or any kind of uniform um so it almost gave the implication that uh, suborbital nuclear or whatever orbital nuclear stations being launched were not military controlled or, or or Gene Roddenberry didn't really care and didn't have the budget for uniforms I don't know yeah I mean it, the, the, the only uniform people are those like two security guards <laughs> it's it's a nuclear orbital platform <laughs> run by the local security company <laughs> and, well I don't want to Spin too far ahead and we'll get to this later, but let, I think they wait till the last, what, two minutes to call the president? Like, uh, yeah. we can't do anything about it. Hey, um, you're going to get an escalation from the rest of the world. We're going to destroy half the planet. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was, I mean, was it, Bill, did you, you say in your strange new take that things kind of went off the rails in the last half? Was that you? Yeah, I just didn't find the kind of dilemma with the nuclear bomb on the Saturn V to be compelling at all. I, yeah, it, it didn't grab me. <clears throat> I mean, do you think that's because, uh, and this is this is just me speculating, I'm not implying that it's true, but we don't fear the bomb as much as they did in the 60s. Yeah, I had that thought. Like, maybe at the time, I mean, this was super topical, and obviously, like, the specter of nuclear war was hanging over everyone's heads all the time, and, you know, my... My parents, you know, had to do drills or they hid under their desks, mm. you know, in school and everything. Mm. So maybe it just doesn't resonate anymore because that's not as top of mind for us. But it's, I mean, it's, I think it's also something about having a, um, because we, we understand that Gary Seven is like basically a good guy or that he, you know, he has the right motivation. So there's really no antagonist. Um, so there, you know, the, the kind of challenge and the plot is like this material object that they just it's like a almost like voyager techno battle they just have to like polarize the deflector dish or whatever and then that solves the problem and so it's it's totally you know removed from any kind of character-based intrigue well and the the antagonists are kirk and spock 
right? Like, right. But they, yeah, but they're they don't, making everything worse. Yeah. yeah, but they don't lean into it. And in the end, it kind of gets confused because them escaping the mission control room suddenly becomes like imperative. And then at the end, they're like, oh, yeah, we have tapes. You guys are like, cool. Like, we knew all along. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's it's all good. Like, don't worry about it. The timeline's been rectified. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird because um, the, 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 there is no antagonist. And the only tension is the fact is the only attempted tension is maybe the audience thinking, guys, you're both on the on the side of good. So just understand that and, or well, Gary Seven knows that the Enterprise doesn't want to do harm, right? But the Enterprise doesn't want to know that Gary Seven doesn't want to do harm. So that's the only tension with the audience. But um, yeah, and, and going back to the um, the Saturn V being um, um, dangerous versus not, I, I guess we're not scared about the bomb as much, you're right. The other thing is the Saturn V is now enshrined in in history and in our memories, and we look at it very differently, right? Um, but if you consider, if you go back to the 60s and you look at the size of that thing, nothing's been built that big before. Um, it, it, it's a missile, essentially, right? The mm-hmm. space program's been built off missiles. Yeah, sure, it can launch a bazillion missiles or a station that could launch missiles. So I guess that sense of fear could be palpable um, to the audience watching at that time. Again, I don't know how much they knew about the Apollo program Again, uh, by late March 1968, I, none of the manned launches or test launches that happened, that happens very quickly through the second half of 68 through the first half of 69, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, m- maybe we look at the Saturn V as, as something that's that's harmless and, and you know, a big thing for mankind. But, but back then, it could just be this huge missile. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I don't want to belabor the point too much after this, but essentially everything gets fixed and Gary 7 blows up the missile and everything gets resolved. I think we've talked quite a bit. I think the, maybe the only thing that we still need to talk about is that Isis, for just half a second in the end, turns into a human <laughs> being, the cat. And it's interesting. Nobody knew who had played the human version of Isis until I think it was like two years ago when they finally oh. found a sheet of the performers and they found an extra uh, in here uh, who had actually uh, played her, April Tatro. Um, she was the cat version was voiced by Barbara Babcock, who was also the voice of the computer, by the way, the Beta Five computer. And she's played a few other characters on TOS. Um, and then the cat version of Isis was played by three black cats, one of whom, unfortunately, is has a racial word as her name or his name so i'm not going to say that out loud here um and the other one other important casting thing montgomery scott is played by james doohan of course in the original series james doohan we also noticed had done a bunch of voice acting in the animated series for a different bunch of different characters turns out he was the mission control announcer really oh in this who was speaking with like a perfect American accent. Like I read this halfway through the episode and I was like, can I pick up on the fact that they have this guy who's usually a Scot playing the mission control? Nope. He's like perfect American accent. Well, well you know, he, he's a Canadian. He is? That's why his Scottish accent is so bad. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he's Canadian. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. How I think, did I I not think know maybe this? one of his parents was Scottish or something. Yeah. I feel like I've watched an interview with him and I've found him to be still speaking with kind of a Scottish accent, but I might have been imagining that. Jeez. Holy crap. How did I find... What kind of Trekkie am I? Jeez. <laughs> Worthless. Um, well, any other final notes on the story on this episode? Anything that you are looking to discuss briefly? I don't, I don't have a positive one. I, again, the the transformation of a cat to a woman. Um, it's just trying to create that same love triangle fighting over a man thing from from the cage and i was like yeah i see what you're trying to do here okay there's going to be tension in the future when this becomes a, a se- season or a series but uh why did you have to like you could have yeah. done something else um anyway for sure they just have this cat follow and by the way the cat doesn't do anything in this episode there's like a couple of times when it attacks somebody but that's about it like it's just there oh, yeah, it does it gets a red shirt or something right, <laughs> right. otherwise it's just like around it's like i mean this is i mean this whole episode is though like so strangely like bond-esque in some ways like they have the cool yeah. gadgets and they have like yeah, not the, yeah. but the the guy this mysterious strange looking person 
by the way, Gary Seven, played by Robert yeah. Lansing, a very distinctive-looking actor uh, from that era with a very distinctive voice. They have him show up, like, stroking a cat a la... Um, what's the name of that Bond villain? The main Bond villain for many years in the 60s and 70s. Oh, my God. Goldfinger? No, no, the head of Spectre. Jeez, how am I forgetting this? I gotta go look this up now. It's the guy with the uh, the scar on his face. Uh, Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Blofeld. Blofeld in his, I think it's, I forget if it's first experience, uh, first appearance or not, but he shows up with a white cat that he's stroking, which is where that like meme of the villain stroking a cat mm. in the chair comes from. So, yeah. So I feel like a lot of this was just like James, let, let's do James Bond in Star Trek. Like, you know, all these gadgets and the cat and all that. But anyway, um, yeah. So I, I, I wish I knew what to make of this episode. I we, we, we will know very soon. You'll have to All rate right. it. Yeah, so let, let's move on. Strange new ratings. Uh, who's, which of you wants to stick your neck out and give this a rating? I can go ahead first. I will give it... Uh, 5.5 um, smoky vaults. But then... <laughs> Um, I, it was, I'll put it this way with all the weird connections around 1968, it came across as much more interesting through this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So this podcast is, is pretty good. I'll, um, you know, a little bit of bias there, but, um, yeah, outside of that, it was, um, there's, they're trying to do a lot of things and it kind of makes sense since I didn't, I didn't watch it with the knowledge of what was going on. Right. Since the cancellation, it, it just came across as. Wow, this looks like one of those um, disjoint episodes that that just happens because the cast wants to have fun. I guess I don't know, but there was very little uh, of them, anyways. But so yeah, and and yeah, the it it tanked so badly at the end. The the saving grace or any grace was the fact that it was a nineteen sixty eight view of the Apollo program, um, just before it really picked up. So that was that was fun to see that footage. Yeah. So I'm going to give it a four out of 10. Um, I mean, I thought, I thought the beginning, it, it kind of intrigued me, right? You have this like weird, mysterious dude in a business suit with the cat who's like might be human or he might not be. And we don't really know. And he comes from some really technologically advanced society. And from there, it was just kind of downhill. I think they really didn't d- deliver on the, the promise of the initial premise. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm with you, man. I got a four and ten as well. It wasn't like I feel like the one, two, and three ratings are like four such abjectly terrible episodes that like it it it, it makes me angry. But this was just it. I, it's not like it's bad enough where I'm indifferent to this episode and I don't like it. But it's not you know objectionable. So I'm gonna go with a four on ten for that reason. Uh, I'm really glad they didn't make this into a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Gene Roddenberry, if you're offended by that, but like. Uh, I had no interest in the Gary Seven TV show after this at all. Well, he, he may go back in time and make it better. You never know. Yeah, you never know. Uh, it's um, I I do think that, that it would probably be a little too attractive to not revisit Gary Seven and Strange New Worlds or Discovery. I'm sure they're gonna do some, like it just it just seems like a little too much of like a untied uh, what is it loose thread. So, anyway, well, uh, with that, let's let's start, talk about which episode we're gonna go through next week, which is it's it's a classic, uh, it's it's a famous one. We're gonna watch Trials and Tribulations from Deep Space Nine, which is kind of cheating because it's like almost a TOS episode, because uh, because it's a redux of uh, the Trouble with Troubles, and so I I hope, dear listener, you enjoy watching this classic as much as we will, and we'll come back next week to recap it. Uh, but with that, thank you, Bill. Thank you, Rudy, for, for being here today and talking Star Trek with me. You know I always appreciate doing so. Thanks, thank Nod. Of course. And thank you, Emily, Adam, Max, and Dinah. I uh, hope you all are having a wonderful week, whatever you all are doing. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us. We always appreciate that you make time for us in your week. And thank you, Jishnu Guha, for recording our theme music. And then special thanks to those two rando cops. 
you know, they could have destabilized the entire timeline by being like, yo, we were on a spaceship. Here's what we saw. They have transporters in the future. And like everything could have been completely messed up. But instead, those two cops are like, you know, dude, if we do that, we're committing so many mistakes and errors and, and it'll just mess up an entire beloved Star Trek franchise that people love. <laughs> so we can't do that. So we're just going to keep our mouth shut and live the rest of our lives in the knowledge that we know something special that nobody else knows. And I think that that warrants our respect and special thanks. So, so there. All right, everybody. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.